0: Welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And today I am joined uh, by Emily Whalen. Uh, Emily is a fifth year PhD candidate in history at University of Texas at Austin, um, where she studies uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. She's also right now a pre-doc at Yale, which I'm incredibly jealous of (laughs) because it means I bet you don't have to teach at Yale, right?
1: (laughs) I don't. Yeah, it's very nice. No, like, all so, I have to just,
0: do is write. So you just get to sit around and write and like be faded at, at 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 like buffets at Yale, right?
1: Yeah, that's about right, actually. Yeah. It's not bad. Not a bad gig.
0: <laughs> oh man, that is that's really good. Uh you can find her uh, on Twitter at EI Whalen and at her website at Emily dot com. Um, so Emily, your your dissertation is about the civil war in Lebanon. And I find it really fascinating, but I I have to be honest, I have <laughs> No idea about the history of Lebanon. I can barely find it on the map. It's in the Middle East, right?
1: It is, yeah. And, and you are you're in good company with that. It is um, a tiny country in the Middle East, in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's between uh, Syria and Israel. It's of only about four thousand square miles, so it's actually smaller than the state of Connecticut. Um, and it's yeah, it's just a very very tiny country. So yeah, you're you're in good company there
0: and if it's a tiny country so like is it all arabic people or mm-hmm. like i imagine if it's a tiny country it's pretty homogenous
1: uh that's a great question so it it it's not <laughs> um it is a really it's a really diverse place so- up until 1922, Lebanon was part of, it wasn't a separate political entity. It was part of the Ottoman empire. And there's a long history um, of association between Syria and Lebanon as well. The big difference between Syria and Lebanon is geographic. So Lebanon is very mountainous and Syria mm. has um, has mountains and plains and desert. And um, the so there are all these kinds of clans and families that settled in Lebanon during the Ottoman period that remained kind of distinct and and a little bit separate. So there's always like a sort of a separate lean in Lebanon, but it hasn't been a separate political entity very long, only um, since 1943. Actually, 1922, 1922 is when it got carved out of the Ottoman Empire and became a French mandate. And then in 1943 is when it gained its independence from France.
0: 1943. So it's a really new country. Let's just let's just talk a little bit about the Ottoman Empire and that Mm -hmm. that thing that you mentioned, a mandate, which which Mm -hmm. is I, you know, I'm a British historian and my expertise ends in 1914, and I know that there's this big thing called the mandate system, which I pretend (laughs) to know what it is, but I'm going to need you to explain it to me. So the Ottoman Empire, that's like Turkey, right? But bigger than Turkey.
1: Right. So, um, that's, a, that's actually kind of a, a really good way to put it. So the Ottoman empire extended through a lot of what we call, um, the Levant now. So the Levant is sort of that that sort of parcel of land that is c- constitutes what we think of as the Middle East. It didn't extend down too far into the Arabian Peninsula. It extended a good ways, but not all the way, and extended into Egypt for a while, but Egypt has always kind of um, had a strong independent lean as well. So um, it's a it's a kind of a vast, sprawling, heterogeneous, diverse empire. Uh, and it's also, uh, you know, it lasts for a long time, but by the time you get to the 20th century, it's pretty weak.
0: Yeah. It's called and, like the stick man of Europe, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> as you know, um, it, yeah, during the, after, well, at around 1914, when there's the World War, uh, the Ottoman Empire joins the um, the side of the Axis powers, and as a result, gets carved up um, in the in the ensuing peace.
0: And I just want to w- hover over one thing, and that's the diversity of the Ottoman Empire. Because when I, yeah. I first like heard about it, I thought, well, they're all it's all going to be like Arabic-speaking Muslims in the Ottoman Empire, but it's it's different than that, right? It's quite. Yeah. Diverse. It's very
1: diverse. Yeah. So the, um, the Ottomans themselves were Turks and so that they're distinct ethnically um, and linguistically from Arabs. And yeah, Tur- um, I lived in Turkey
0: for a while and Turkey, yeah. Turkish is like a wild language. It's not, it is, it, it's yeah. not Indo-European. It's, it's Altaic. It, 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 uses a lot of like, you know, uh, uh, suffixes to, ver- uh, to, yeah. to, to words to make things work which is it's, a, it's 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 very different than arabic or 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 uh uh any uh, indo-european language
1: yeah, it's totally different. And it's, I think, I always think it sounds a bit like, um, like words in Turkish to me kind of sound like a Star Wars language. I don't know. I always yes. have that in my mind, <laughs> yes. but it's really, it's a beautiful language. It's really fascinating. Um, but so the, the Turks, uh, the Ottoman Turks set up this system that's uh, sort of an empire in the way, actually the Roman empire was an empire where you, um, have these allowances or the Macedonian empire, I think is a better parallel Well, you have just sort of these allowances for people to have their own languages, their own gods, their own traditions, even though they're conquered and under this broad, broader umbrella administratively, there's a certain degree of um, freedom and independence that can be had within each of these um, sort of smaller federate, like federal units that constitute this larger empire, if that makes sense. And is um, that so, geographic?
0: Because yeah. my understanding is that like as, as well as geographic entities, there's also like Devshirme, there's, there's mm-hmm. uh, Christian and, and Jewish communities and, and uh, uh, within cities that have their own kind of independence am, am, yeah. is that did I pick up something wrong
1: <laughs> no that's actually that's a it's a really good um I, I like that observation because you're right there, we talk about these or ways of organizing politically. And, um, often we either, t- I find that people tend to either assume it's geographically based or, um, sort of identity based, but often what you have is an overlap of both. So there are yeah. geographic distinctions within the Ottoman empire, and then there are legal and identity dis- distinctions. And this is actually one of the things that makes the Ottoman empire. So interesting, um, is that there are allowances for Christians and Jews within the Ottoman empire. So the the Ottomans themselves are Muslim. Um, and the, and a lot of the laws are structured around Muslim laws or laws of Islam. And, uh, But there are allowances for Christians and Jews to to continue practicing their religion and to have um, limited rights. They don't have the same kind of rights that Muslim citizens of the empire do, but they still have a legal position within the Ottoman system, um, which is unusual. Because if you look at some of the states in Europe at the time, non-Christians don't have any legal position whatsoever. Oh
0: yeah! If you go back to to my century in in England, if if you don't subscribe to the articles of the Anglican Church, you can't oh do God. a ton of different things. Whereas if you go over to the Ottoman Empire, you can you can be a, a practicing Jew. Well, so let's let let's talk about what happens after the end of the First World War. So the Ottoman Empire is this big, uh, uh, diverse. Uh, political unit that over time weakens. And the big thing that happens is that the First World War shatters its legitimacy. And you mm-hmm. get from, go from the big Ottoman Empire to mm-hmm. within Turkey, people wanting a nation state called Turkey. And the big yes. thing about the nation state is that it's going to have one language and one people who are Turks,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But
0: then yeah. Turkey's a lot smaller than the Ottoman Empire. So tell me what happens to the rest of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Yeah. So it, um, as I said, it kind of gets carved up and, um, and the, what you have, it plays out in different ways in different parts of the, of the, what used to be the Ottoman Empire. So I don't want to generalize, but I can talk about what happened in Lebanon, which is Great. that um, in Lebanon, Within this big diverse empire, Lebanon itself is also a microcosm of high diversity. So there are a lot of Christian, uh, Christian sort of towns and and um, governances in Lebanon at the time, more so than in other parts of the Ottoman Empire. So. The and I'm grossly oversimplifying, and scholars of early Lebanese history would uh, cringe to hear me characterize it like this. But it's um, what you have essentially is a, a an accord kind of strikes up between. The French and some of the Christian uh, communities in Lebanon, where they argue that the, the, these Christian communities argue that they need a separate political entity to avoid essentially being overrun by Muslims, and hmm. uh, they they sort of characterize Lebanon as a safe haven for Christians and from religious persecution within with the Ottoman Empire, and this really plays into European views of the of the Middle East and of Arabs and of and of Muslims, and um, and so Lebanon becomes its own sort of mandate under the mandate system. The mandate system, to answer your previous question, it's, it's very similar to the um, the colonial system. In this, but in the sense that there it was more of a, it was more of a burden to run a mandate. A colony Mm. um, was uh, theoretically presented some kind of economic advantage to the colonizer. And the mandate was um, more of a, it was a very patriarchal uh, sort of patronizing, excuse me, system that said, okay, well, you know, This country is going to kind of run things for you until you're technically mature enough uh, to to run uh, your country on your own, theoretically. So it's still very, yeah, still very patronizing.
0: It's it's kind of like how we think of international development now only with tanks.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. So
0: we have this situation where there's, uh, after the First World War, a bunch of European powers slice up parts of the Middle East into these various mandates. And mm-hmm. Lebanon is carved out of the it, – it wasn't an independent province before, right? It was carved out of it, Syria.
1: It had or am some – there is – generally you're right. It wasn't technically independent from Syria, but it did have its own governor. Um, and it had its sort of own traditions. So there was, um, you know, the idea of Lebanon being independent didn't come out of nowhere. Um, but it wasn't, it was much more ambiguous. It was much more of a sort of a reflective equilibrium before. Um, and, but 1922 is when it becomes unambiguously a distinct political entity.
0: Okay. And, uh, part of the reason why it gets this distinct, uh, 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 national entity uh identity Mm -hmm. is that the people are worried that there needs to be a safe haven for christians in the middle east
1: yes um and no so
0: (laughs) oh yes and no well well (laughs) let's save the the no for later i just want so i want to know who's living in in lebanon at the time like what do you have a sense of what like the demographic breakdown is what are the different kinds of communities that we're seeing in lebanon
1: That's a that's a good question. And it's um, actually probably more complicated than you might have anticipated. So um, everything
0: in history is more complicated than I anticipate.
1: So one of the things that could be the tagline
0: for the podcast, making of a story (laughs) more complicated than you anticipated.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for real. Um, So one of the things that the French do. Uh, under Mm -hmm. the mandate, is that they establish a a system, a local system of political organization for the the Lebanese. And um, they allocate political representation in this system based on confessional identity. And what I mean by confessional identity is essentially just religious identity, but um, it's You know, more fine grained than than just saying, oh, okay, Christians get this many seats in parliament and Muslims get this many seats. They actually, um, you know, you go in and say, "Okay, well, the Maronite Christians, which is a particular sect of Christianity, get these many seats and the Greek Orthodox Christians get these and the Sunni Muslims get these, et cetera, et cetera. So, wow. so
0: there's, and, and the way that you say that, I imagine that there's a lot of et cetera, et cetera. There's there a lot is. of different confessions. So I
1: don't know of at the time, because this is actually a little bit before the period that I, that I work on. Um, but I know now in Lebanon, there are still um, political representation is still apportioned according to one's um, religious identity. And there are 17 different recognized um, sects of religions wow. that, that theoretically have, um, have, you know political, um, political representation attached to them. So it is very syncretic, I think is the word that, um, I, I, use a lot, which is an annoying word cause it's kind of big, but what it means is just that, you know, people are really, you everyone's kind of allowed to have their idiosyncrasies. So there's like Armenian Protestant, Christians um, that are of an evangelical faith, and then there's also the Armenians who are just Armenian Christian, not specifically Protestant Christian. So it's, you can go like on this, like on this for hours. So yeah, I
0: I mean, I mean, in some ways, this feels a little bit like a optimistic story. You have. A, and it's a, you have a democracy being made in the Middle East, where you have a bunch of different confessions that oftentimes are at each other's throats, and you get a system where they're all able to get representation and like have a country that
1: yeah, I that think, works.
0: And and yeah. and and, and uh, just economically, like tell me, like is Lebanon a, a wealthy country mm-hmm. compared to other countries in the Middle East?
1: So I I it is for a time. Um, it does not now, um, you know, as we enter into the 20th century or the late 20th century, it doesn't have oil. So, uh, it doesn't have, you know, kind of the, the, the same kind of resources. They don't fill
0: up uh, uh, jets with, with, (laughs) with, with hunting hawks.
1: Right. Yeah. And because it's so small, um, it, what it can provide is still pretty limited. Uh, You know, back on the question of sectarianism, it is a hopeful Mm. system, but I think it's also really illustrative, too, of how um, deeply. Connected the history of sectarianism in Lebanon and in the broader Middle East um, is with the history of the West as well. So uh, there's this Lebanese... So we, when we talk about the, the Middle East in the West, often we spend a lot of time trying to suss out the differences between different, between different sects. We talk about Sunni yeah. versus Shia. We talk about all this stuff. Um, but we don't really understand... What well, we don't really seem to grasp or what doesn't come through in these conversations is that the, the sectarian Middle East was imagined and created um, largely by Westerners. And so this is a, this is a, you know, there's a history here of pluralism in the region, but sectarianism in a lot of ways is the opposite of pluralism because it it reduces your political rights to your religious identity. Um,
0: So, so in some ways, like that distinction that you made between evangelical Protestant Armenians and like just Christian, non-Protestant Armenians—that mm-hmm. was not as marked before the mandate system.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. And because because they the, the 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 French and others are coming into Lebanon with these ideas that you should categorize people based on their sectarian identity mm-hmm. and then make institutions that view that sectarian identity, those sectarian identities become increasingly important
1: exactly yeah wow. and this connects to your other uh, question about the lebanon's economy as well um, because these different sects also have disparate relationships with these external powers, particularly during the mandate period. What you find is that um, one one sect in particular, Maronite Christians, have a very close relationship with the French and with the French um, hmm. authorities. And so what happens as a result of that is that they are apportioned Um, disproportionate representation in the system. And that allows them to, they are able to exploit the mandate system to acquire greater political and economic um, power than they might otherwise have just based on their demographic breakdown.
0: Wow. So, so because the Maronite Christians are 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 more connected with with and what languages do they speak? Are they all like? Is it all speaking people speaking Arabic or, or yeah. are people speaking other other languages? Are, are people speaking French?
1: <laughs> yes, um, both Arabic and French uh, are spoken mostly. You have um, there's sort of a class difference here, which is that people who are upper middle class and upper class uh, Lebanese will speak French and um, and pretty much everyone else speaks Arabic. So, and that sort of continues to this day Um, in Lebanon. I, when I had a couple of friends visit me when I was living in Beirut for uh, research and I was, you know, just chatting with somebody in the neighborhood and I... Looked over and I realized they were staring at me like I was a crazy person because I was carrying on a conversation in French, English, and Arabic all at once. Um, <laughs> and that's just sort of how you get by, and I love it. I think it's fantastic, but it doesn't mean I speak you know French, English, and Arabic very poorly. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah. So well, tell is, me yeah. a
0: little. Bit, tell me a little bit about Beirut because yeah. I, when I think of Lebanon, I think. Only of that one city, and, and I, it seems important, but I don't know why. Like, mm-hmm. is it an important city? Like, is it I, is it called Paris of the Middle East? Am I thinking, yeah, is
1: it-, it used to be. Um, so, the Beirut is a fantastic city. Uh, it's a really chaotic and frustrating and interesting place. Uh, it's fine that you think of that. That is really the the main city in Lebanon. There are other cities in Lebanon, but that is the capital. And because it's such a small city, um, I think more than half of the population of Lebanon now lives in Beirut. So it is, um, it's right that you would associate it so, so closely with the city before, um, before 1948. So 1948 is a big year in Middle Eastern history because that was the year in which the Israel Palestine war broke out the, and, um, and Israel became a state. And uh, and there are enormous ramifications for that uh, throughout Lebanese history as well. So before 1948, the major port on that side of the Mediterranean was Haifa, but because of the war uh, with with Israel and Palestine, Beirut becomes more important, and it really becomes kind of the the port city. So it has a long history. It was a Roman town, but it wasn't the most important. Sort of city on that side of the on that side of the Mediterranean until relatively recently. Again in the in the mid to late twentieth century is when it sort of rises to its prominence.
0: Okay, well, so uh, I, I the sense that I'm getting right now is I'm uh, somewhat an optimistic one. Mm-hmm. I, you do you have a bunch of of uh, you you have something working. Mm-hmm. Let's fast forward to the seventies and talk about when it stops working.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. So the seeds, while it is, you're right that there's some optimism here, the seeds um, of what of the breakdown are are sown in this period in the 1943 to to the 1950s period. So, uh, the, and I think that is because of the, sec- it comes back to the sectarian system. It's designed to be a system that is a stable system. And while that sounds Mm. really good, the other side of that is that it's also a very rigid system and it's brittle. Um, so it's a, because the system is supposed to maintain a particular status quo, it can't accommodate change. And in Lebanon, in the sixties and seventies, you have a lot of change going on. I would say there's three big changes. Um, one is economic liberalization. So as you said, Beirut, this is the period when Beirut becomes the Paris of the Middle East. There's, although Lebanon doesn't have, a lot of its own resources. It has a lot of freedom. And uh, so you get all this banking and oil money kind of flooding in. Hmm. This is when, you know, you've got, you know, starlets and sheikhs are, you know, gambling in the Casino du Liban. And it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a, um, it's sort of like the Monaco kind of a party town. Um, yeah of- in, in my
0: like mental imagination of it, like the picture is a bunch of very well-dressed people, like <laughs> yeah. sunglasses and like cool suits and and yeah. and just that 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 kind of like, francophone style.
1: Yeah, it's like it's very it's very glamorous and you know you've got like Omar Sharif, you know, jetting in and out and you know it's just really it is that kind of um and I think in some ways because it was in the Middle East it also had this kind of patina of exoticism, right? You've got mm. the the bellboys at the hotels are wearing fezes and you know it's just kind of it seems like this exotic and interesting and but still very familiar place. Yeah, um, yeah but with this economic liberalization is you've got i mean this is what's happening in Beirut, right um but the other side of this is that there's this massive inequality opening up um and that the poor people who live in the South of Lebanon or who live in some of the mountain villages are kind of flooding into Beirut because this is where there are jobs. Um, hmm. and the economy becomes uh, the word that that I like to use is externalized. It becomes a service economy and like it's fa- focused on banking and services and tourism and things like that, but it's not, um, a self-sufficient Economy, so it is all of the uh, market is driven by external interests, not Lebanese interests, but the interests of the of the people who are investing in Lebanon. Um, so wow, yeah. So it is. So I just, yeah. I just,
0: I just want to recap that because mm-hmm. I think that's super important. You have yes. this rigid political system that mm-hmm. is meant to create stability, mm-hmm. and on top of that, you have a like late, you know, a, a late twentieth century story. Of the development of an urban service economy, exactly. you have a big city Beirut where you have banking and tourism and and restaurants, and this is like the place where the main engine of the economy is running. Mm-hmm. And but the orientation of the politics is towards that like urban liberalized like service economy, not towards the vast rest of the economy where people are still having to like. Grow, yeah, crops.
1: Exactly, yeah. So Lebanon is essentially—it's um, it, kind of—I think of it as eating itself, basically. Mm. In this, where it's you know you're pulling in all this money, but it's not going into better infrastructure or um, or increased government services. And this is in part because, as um, I mentioned, the you know you've got this rigid system that's not particularly focused on um, on providing services to to its people. So so this is yeah, it's a it's a struggle. And on top of this, you have population change, demographic change. And this is the kind of change, precisely the kind of change that the system can accommodate.
0: Um, is this our second reason?
1: Yeah, this is number two. Okay. So first
0: reason economics, second reason demographic.
1: Demographic. Right. So um, the last so it, the last census that Lebanon has ever had was in 1932. And even that census. That, that's
0: crazy. I, I like my understanding of the modern state is that they love nothing more than to take censuses. Yeah. That's, 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 a, that's mind boggling to me. Like, like Britain has had a census, like since 1800, they didn't do the 1932.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, so. And even that census, Brennan, like everyone agreed at the time that it was definitely like really shoddy and and not done well. And basically it was done in an effort to say, okay, well, there are more Maronite Christians here than anybody else. So we're going to give them more political power. Um, Right. So Hmm. it it was done by the French mandate government. So it's just it's really it was a mess. (laughs) And think about it. If this you know, this is a system that basically thrives on, um, elite cooperation. So you have in every different sect in every different political party, there are people who are at the top. And as long as they cooperate with the other people at the top, um, the system works. So they don't really have an incentive to reform or to change or to run another census that might put them out of power because Uh, it's about elite cooperation. Does that make sense?
0: It, I, it, it makes perfect sense because I keep on reflecting it to contemporary American political life. Yeah. Like, I see flyover states and, like... Urban elites like mm-hmm. we have now. I see kind of like with with this problem of representation and and, and demographics. I see problems like with the electoral college. Mm-hmm. It seems really similar to, to to some of the stuff that's going on now. I'm reading yeah. it perfectly.
1: Yeah, no. But so I, yeah. so
0: demographic change. That must mean that 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 the official representation, like this official understanding of of who's making up the different uh, uh, seventeen sects. Mm-hmm. Does not adequately reflect the actual population. Am I yeah, right?
1: Not by far. Um, so you have the particularly. Um, the Maronite Christians are becoming a minority. Well, they they are a minority, They're becoming a shrinking minority. You also have enormous population growth in the um, in the south of Lebanon, which is largely where there are Shia Muslim populations, and they are historically underrepresented in Lebanon. So they've got um, a lot of political grievances as well, and the Muslim community is also growing much more quickly. So the, so there's just, it's very clear that the representation is not matching what's actually happening in Lebanon and the actual face of the Lebanese population. Um, and, and for a while, this kind of pattern holds, but then you have something that is a little bit scary to the elites happen, which is that there are two prominent elite politicians who start to say no? You know what? We do need to run another census. We do need to push for secularization of our political process, and we do need to have substantial reform. So you have, and, as and I this said, is a
0: threat because be, because the political system is running on elite cooperation. Exactly, right? it doesn't matter how out of how out of whack the politics gets from the people when mm-hmm. the politics is just elites scratching each other's back. But you have two mm-hmm. people who are saying no, 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 no. We need to go outside. Exactly, we need to break. Yeah. We need to break this cabal.
1: Yeah, the exactly. So right, so right. all of this is going on in the seventies and I haven't even gotten to the third factor, <laughs> which is, um, which is that the, it's the Palestinian res- resistance. So, um, the Palestinians li- the sort of are driven out of, uh, of Palestine in 1948 and they are based largely in the West bank and in Gaza. And then also in Jordan, there's a war in Jordan. They relocate to Lebanon in 1971 and they're bringing with them firepower. So the Palestinian guerrillas are battle hardened. They have firepower, they're well-organized and they, um, they can essentially, they're just essentially more of a threat than the Lebanese army ever would be to Israel. Uh, and they, they start to build a rapport between with the, with the leftist and reform parties. So, um, the Palestinian, uh, diaspora in Lebanon. It's not monolithic. There are a lot of different uh, political positions, a lot of different political organizations within it, but a lot of them are on the left and they're giving more support to the leftist and to the reform parties in Lebanon. And um, and then most of them are also Muslim. There are a substantial number of Palestinian Christians, but most of the leadership of the Palestinian Liberation Organization are Muslim. Uh, so they begin striking okay. Israel from the South and they're drawing massive retaliation from Israel. So Lebanon is actually under fire um, already just from Israel.
0: Okay. So we have, we have this third situation, which is the, 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 the Palestinians and, and, Mm -hmm. and something else that you kind of snuck in there, which Mm -hmm. is usually when we talk about politics in the West, we talk about left and right, but here is the first time you've mentioned left and right as a political orientation. We've been talking about sects as a political orientation, mm-hmm. but here we have kind of a left-wing element. Is that, is that important yeah. uh, to, to how the story is framed?
1: Yeah. It's just always So this is something I struggle with when um, talking about the Lebanese civil war, because you have um, different cleavages, you have different wars going on. There's, there's a class war going on. There's a war between left and right. There's a war, a little bit of a war between Christian and Muslim, but the dynamics between all those identities change and morph over time, and the the war lasts for fifteen years. So the people who are fighting it, you know, in 1988, they have the same religious identity and the same political uh, slogans as the people who started it in 1975. But there's a real difference in how they identify themselves. So the war acquires a more sectarian character over time, but it really does start, I think, as a political, um, as a political dispute.
0: Okay. Well, so let's, let's now just, just talk about the war we've met. We've, we've, we've spoiled the big thing. There is a civil war and it's a long one. Mm -hmm. Um, 15 years, 1975 to 1990. Is that right? That's right? So give us just the bare bones architecture of like, how well, my understanding of the Lebanese Civil War just boils down to two words: It's complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's all I yeah. know about it. So tell me a little yeah. bit more than it's complicated. I understand that there's sure. sectarian division and political division. But mm-hmm. yeah, run me through it. Are do a lot of people die or or is it yes. just kind of,
1: yeah, okay. They think um, so. The official number is about one hundred fifty thousand people die, but of course, um, that does not. I, I don't think that that really accounts for all of the casualties in the war. There's also a massive displacement of people. So um, I think I want a couple million Lebanese leave Lebanon uh, and go into other countries, and this is part of the reason why in any major. City in the world, you're going to find a really good Lebanese restaurant. Uh,
0: every I've lived in a lot of cities all around the world, mm-hmm. and every place that I've been, there is Lebanese food.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Um, from Seoul to, to 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 Istanbul, like to yeah. to Italy, they, Lebanese people are everywhere.
1: They're everywhere. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I think uh, I think you can think of the war in layers. There's the local conflict over, um, sort of the conflict over what Lebanon, you know. Who is Lebanon? Who does Lebanon belong to? What is Lebanon as a state? Um, and, yeah. and this kind of political dispute. Then there's the regional dispute, which is, um, you know, Israel and Palestine. And eventually Syria becomes very involved because it sort of takes up of protecting the Palestinian resistance when Egypt signs the Camp David Accords. So there's a, there's a proxy war in Lebanon, and sometimes an actual war in Lebanon, between Syria Palestine, um, Syria, the Palestinians, and Israel as well. Yeah, and then wow. and, and Iran becomes involved, but unfortunately, I focus on uh, the period before there's substantive Iranian involvement. Um, and uh, and then on the sort of the third layer, there is the global Cold War, and you have the United States is you know involved in various capacities but eventually in 1982 there's boots um, you know US boots on the ground in Lebanon as a peacekeeping force there is a UN uh peacekeeping force as well from 1978 onwards and then Russia while there aren't um I can't find any sources that tell me definitively that there were Russian soldiers in Lebanon and I don't think that there were but Russia is providing Syria with substantive firepower they're helping the Palestinians as well so they're involved too so this does get framed as a cold War dispute sometimes um, in sort of the ideological showdown between the United States and um, the USSR so that's why it's complicated
0: <laughs> so, so what does this look like uh, it sounds incredibly complicated and but you've you've done a great job of showing me the different players and of explaining how it comes about but I wonder how does this look like on the ground because when I understand a war I I, I think of like, so, you know, uniformed mm-hmm. soldiers walking through, I don't know, I think mm-hmm. of World War II, like a yeah. bunch of Germans walking through a wood and shooting at each other. What is this war? It, mm-hmm. it was 15 years. So I, I, I imagine that this war looks yeah. different. What, what does it look like on the ground? What's the everyday experience <laughs> yeah. of it? I mean, it's 15 years. So you. you mm-hmm. I, I don't expect you to tell me about every year, but 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 what's, That's what's a good it question? Like?
1: So uh, I think... And I actually don't think your um, vision of war is too far off of the experience of some people in the war. So one thing I would say is that the war looks very different in the cities than it does um, in the in the mountains and in the countryside of Lebanon and in the valleys. Uh, So in those places out in the rural areas, you do have these kind of pitched battles over towns and 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 i a, a real desire to take over particular territory and things like that um in beirut and in, in tripoli and some of the other cities in lebanon it's i think it's it's sort of a mix between chaos and absurdity uh so you have the coexistence of normalcy and wartime and the Lebanese people do what they are so good at doing, which is just they adapt to this. So in Beirut, within hmm. you know within hours of the f- sort of precipitating massacre, uh, there are checkpoints that go up all over the city. So different militias set up different checkpoints, and they establish so the city as a unified um, entity dissolves into different sort of different neighborhoods, and um, and and some of these barriers are you know, kind of informal, but some of them are are deadly. So the the central, there's a street that runs straight through the middle of Beirut. It's called Damascus Street. It was called the Green Line because that became kind of the major dividing line between uh, what became known as the East Beirut and what became known as West Beirut during the war. And it was called the Green Line because that was where all the snipers would go and nobody would no, You know, they would just kind of sit out, like hide out in buildings along the Green Line. And so nobody wanted to cross the Green Line. So um, there are these crazy pictures of these shelled out buildings. And then between them is just essentially a forest that has sprung up because, because nobody's gone there. Wow. So the architecture of the... Um, of the city changes itself. There's also an enormous, um, fight over the hotels district. So these, this glamorous glittering, you know, cosmopolitan hotels district in Beirut that, you know, was sort of the playground of the rich and famous very quickly becomes a site of enormous battles because there's actually strategic advantage to holding the high, um, the high ground. And so, um, yeah, you have these like very bloody, almost like trench warfare battles um, in these you know, incredibly plush hotels, and uh, yeah.
0: Wow, I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to a moment that you sure. that you talked about just now that that's that's really striking, and that's the moment between yeah. peace and war. So you say that there's a mm-hmm. massacre that initiates things, and then within 24 hours people make mm-hmm. checkpoints in neighborhoods. And I just want to zone in on that because that's, that's like a, that's a sure. a, a strange experience. So, like, I want to know a little bit about mm-hmm. what that actually looked like, like what the massacre was and how, how those checkpoints rose up. And I want to know a little bit about neighborhood life beforehand. Like, is it like right now, like if there's, there's nothing in my neighborhood that really distinguishes it from any other neighborhood in the Bay area from like sure. a, a demographic perspective. So like, is it like Drew's yeah, live that's in one neighborhood? a So,
1: yeah. uh, It's in terms of the diversity of neighborhoods, it's um, it's variable. So West Beirut is was kind of seen eventually as the kind of Muslim section of Beirut, but in fact, it was the more. It's very diverse. Um, I have friends from Christian families whose families lived in West Beirut throughout the entire war. That was where the PLO was based, so it faced um, most of the firepower from the Israeli army during the invasions. But um, to go back a little bit, let me talk about the precipitating massacre um, because I think. Think it's a good microcosm to show how complicated some of these questions are so uh it's called the bus massacre it happened or the al romane bus massacre it happened in a in a greek orthodox neighborhood a neighborhood that's predominantly greek orthodox uh in, in beirut in, in beirut. one of the suburbs of beirut and what happened was and this is still under dispute um uh, but group of Palestinians were traveling from one camp in in East Beirut to another camp in West Beirut, um, and they were stopped at a checkpoint that had gone up earlier in the day because of an attempted assassination um, by these militiamen from the Falanges. And the Falanges were a conservative Christian party. They eventually became the conservative Christian party. Uh, they're run by a family called the Jamiles. And so they're stopped by the Kata'ib, or excuse me, by the Falanges. I'm sorry, the kitab is the, the Lebanese name. Um, and, uh, and there's something... Happens. Nobody really knows what. And, um, and a massacre breaks out and and everyone in the bus, except for the bus driver is killed. A lot of the phalangists are killed as well. Um, but word kind of spreads about this and, um, it raises a lot of questions. I mentioned an assassination attempt earlier in the day. So the this was, Lebanon in 1974, before all of this happened, it was still a chaotic place. There were still battles, you know, still clashes and things like that between some of these different armed militias. Um, but the government got very good at diffusing the diffusing the crisis every time they sort of bubbled up. And, uh, and the difference between those instances and this instance was simply that the government could not diffuse it quickly enough um so i'm sorry i've gotten lost my trail trail yeah
0: no i mean i i I mean we're wrestling with a really difficult thing which is it seems like it's it's why does this spark change everything and no other spark does like you've you you it's the we have this this situation where uh the 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 community of what lebanon is is kind of Fractured. Yeah. there's there's problems and then there's this there's a bunch of problems things get bad enough that the political parties have armed mm-hmm. militias in the streets that yeah. are having checkpoints and then something happens to make that go from just a tense situation to an actual war mm-hmm. that lasts for 15 years and that's something i mean that's mysterious that's yeah. that's I, that's
1: i think so on yeah. that I, you know i usually say there are uh, three lessons um, that I take from sort of my study and sort of their lessons and their mantras as well. Cause it helps me remember, um, you know, it helps keep me, me keep my head straight because you could go into conspiracy theories about this stuff for hours. Um, so, the, it, for me, the determining factor of whether or not a civil war happens in the first place is not really how radicalized or how polarized your politics are, but it's how willing are elites mm-hmm. to use violence to to prevent reform. Um, and so, yes, as I mentioned, yes, you mentioned, yes. and as I mentioned, that there are there's enough tension in politics in Lebanon in the early 19. 70s, that you see these political parties start to create armed militias and that start to use the rhetoric of war. Um, but the hmm. decision to actually commit acts of violence that, um, you know, or to, to bring this language of violence and to bring the um, iconography of violence into the political realm, that's a decision made by elites who are not willing to reform. Um, and I think yeah.
0: So this this it's 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 violence as as as, yeah. as a part of politics. This acceptance that part of politics exactly. is shooting and killing and assassinating. Um, last week's episode was with my my colleague Craig Johnson, and we talked about uh, the history of the right wing and one of his distinguishing features of fascism. What makes fascism different from other right wing ideologies is the mm-hmm. central place of violence. Uh, yes. in fascism, that fascism likes street violence, mm-hmm. it sees violence as redemptive, mm-hmm. fun, um, you know, something that's yeah. that's good for the polity. And here you have a similar thing. where vi- where, 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 where enough mm-hmm. players in the game treat violence as something and then it's that the too. I
1: to think that. that's another part right? of it. Um, because the Lebanese compli- situation is so complicated, there's this um almost kind of a longing for violence as a clarifying. As theoretically clarifying, of course, violence is not yeah. clarifying, um, and I can you know, think the fifteen years of the Lebanese civil war yeah. attest to that. Uh, but it's it is sort of um, yeah this idea that if you can just you know fight it out in the streets, then then things will become um, the way forward will become clearer. Uh, exactly. Kill yeah. them and
0: let God sort it out, right? Like, or or or, or a situation right like now in America where where mm-hmm. things seem tense and confusing. Like, there's this idea that you've if you just Wipe everybody out. It will be it, it, yeah. this is bad and guys. This comes, and everything will be
1: fine. This uh, pertains to a question you had asked earlier about like sort of neighborhood life in Lebanon. One of the things that happens over the course of the civil war is that mm. the diversity of neighborhoods um, diminishes, and it diminishes because of their there are actual programs that, yeah. in particular, this of uh, the Phalanges uh, unleash in East Beirut. They start to drive to try to drive the non Christians out of East Beirut, and um, and they're largely successful. And there's actually a part of Lebanon that was called Free Lebanon for a while. They called it, they called it Free Lebanon because it was under the almost totalitarian control of the Phalanges militia. Um, but it was able to achieve that because they drove out anybody who wasn't um, who wasn't a Christian, and they engineered that.
0: Well, so I, I'm thinking back to what what is something that you, you described during the mandate system, where. Uh, Western forms of categorization led to a distinct marketness mm-hmm. of of different sects, and here you have like the logic exactly. of war doing a similar thing, turning diverse neighborhoods and or, or relatively diverse neighborhoods into mm-hmm. relatively homogenous neighborhoods.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was our the first lesson, lesson. Is, is um, what's the second that lesson? That to call something a civil war is um, is sometimes a misdirection, and um, and I think that that is because... I think of this as, you know, saying something is a civil war, it conceptually confines the responsibilities and the consequences of a war to a particular geographic area. And th- I think this relates to the question, what you raised on hmm. um, this uh, sort of mysterious way, the civil conflict becomes a, something much bigger. Um, and, you know, those layers I mentioned earlier, the local, the regional and the global conflicts happening in Lebanon, there's a lot of um they aren't distinct from each other on a horizontal level. There's a lot of blending that goes up and down. So in 1982, uh yeah. Israel invades Lebanon in large part to drive out the PLO. They want to get rid of the Palestinians once and for all, but also because they want to put Bashir Jamael, the who is one of the leaders of this Falangist militia, um, into the presidency of Lebanon. And um, Hmm. they want that because they would like, they want want a, another peace treaty. They want, um, to, you know, camp David has happened. They want another peaceful border with Lebanon. And they think that if they can create, and even this rhetoric comes up, um, with some of the speeches that are made, they want to create a Christian version of Israel essentially in Lebanon. So it's a place where all the Christians, Hmm. um, in the middle East can go and live free from, you know, being living in a Muslim country. And, um, and, and while this would serve Israeli interests to a certain degree, it's also serving the interests of Bashir Jamail. He's able to manipulate the Israelis and eventually the Americans to achieve what he wants, which is the presidency of Lebanon. Um, so it's not just a one-way street here. There's influence going in both directions. and yeah.
0: so, so so that's our, our our second lesson. Our second lesson is that by calling the Lebanese civil war a civil war, we misunderstand it as something that's purely yeah. a local Conflict. Whereas, to really understand it, you have to understand these interweaving uh, uh, layers mm-hmm. of a local conflict, a regional conflict, and yeah, a exactly. global ideological conflict. So, so the compl- part of my 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 naive understanding of it is, oh, it's just so complicated, is because. Mm. I think of it as a civil war when it's really a civil war mixed with a, you know, regional war mixed with like, yes, you know, exactly. Vietnam, part yeah. one. And, yeah. and
1: that lesson, um, ties into the third lesson, which is, it's really Pat, but it's a good reminder, which is that there's no good guys in Lebanon. Um, and, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> That's not Pat. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I keep on looking it's for really good evil. guys. It's in my history we want to, we
1: want to root for somebody. We want to feel like there's a, a right and a wrong. Um, but there are no good guys in Lebanon. Not even the United States is a good guy in Lebanon in particular. Sometimes the United States is not a good guy. Um, and it's something that I think policymakers forget, um, now looking at the Middle East, that there, there are no good guys. Like you have got to really make difficult decisions. You're never going to make a decision that is really clean and, um, and right, but it's the important thing is making a decision. Um, and, and so I think it's a good reminder. Thinking about Lebanon in that way, as I said, um, you know, it's this idea that that the United States can't come in in 1982 as peacekeepers and fix the situation because they are also not good guys um, in this as well. Does that make that sounds kind of vague? But I think not mm. makes sense? Yeah, yeah. That,
0: that 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 makes complete sense. And I know we have to wrap up, but I I, I just want to yeah. g- 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 end with one question, and and that is like. I want to know your big takeaway from this. The, the history of the Lebanese civil war is obviously really fascinating, and you've done a great job of, of, of presenting it in an understandable way. But I sense like an undercurrent of, uh, in your work about the nature of like what a. What a pluralistic nation state is. I just want to hear like, like, have you like, like explain that a bit to me so um, I can understand it better. My
1: takeaway from it is exactly what you've said. You know, I think we look at conflicts like the Lebanese civil war, um, particularly in the United States. We look at them and we see them as proof that you have to have um, some kind of unifying ethnic or religious uh, or linguistic identity in order to make your state strong Um, and i think actually Hmm. you know the lebanese civil war proves that that's not the case because to me what i see in those 15 years of violence is an effort to engineer this kind of homogeneity where it just didn't exist and it has never existed you know in the thousands of years uh, that people have lived in the area that we now know as lebanon it's never been a homogenous place that's part of the reason i love it there Um, and so, by it, it illustrates to me the amount of power uh, it takes to maintain the status quo, um, to maintain this international system of nation states. And it raises for me the question of: Well, is it really worth it? If it's going to be, there's going to be so much economic and hmm. lo- economic loss, loss of life, loss of potential, um, and violence and destruction. You know what is. It, what is it for? Um, and if you look at Lebanon today, a lot of these questions are still unresolved. So the, so the war ended in 1990. People really call that a ceasefire and not a peace treaty because a lot of the questions at the heart of it have remained unresolved um, for years and years. So I think it's a. I, I I use my work as an invitation to kind of raise these bigger questions of you know what what do we want out of a nation state? What does what political freedom really look like um, if we're living in these artificially homogenous societies?
0: Wow, well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Uh, and thank you to, to, to everybody who listens. Um, thanks to uh, all the in-laws who listen. Uh, Emily, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the number one demographic okay. for the show are in-laws. Um, I've never <laughs> met an great. in-law who doesn't like the show. Uh, Thank, thanks to Duncan Barton for doing our image and to Jonathan Lear uh, for doing our music. Um, next week, we will be having on uh, my colleague from Berkeley, uh, B.K. Williams. And uh, I think we'll be talking about uh, uh, God, I think something in the Middle East. <laughs> Don't forget his actual topic. Anyway, I'll speak to you then. Um, thanks very much.